This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Welcome to I'm So Obsessed, where we get the inside take from actors, artists, and creators on their work, their career, and the things they obsess about. I'm your host, Connie Guillermo. Do animals feel pain? Do they have a sense of self? Are they aware of their lives? For anyone who's spent time with an animal, a beloved cat, dog, bird, the answer is yes, of course. Carl Safina most definitely agrees. But the ecologist who spent his life studying animal behavior says you may be surprised to know that not everyone agrees and that the study of animal behavior is a relatively new field. It's so new, in fact, that many of the pioneers, like primatologist Jane Goodall, are still alive today. And then there's Safina. He's released a new book this year called Becoming Wild that explores what culture means to animals. I spoke with Safina about what we can learn about ourselves from studying animals and what he's seen during the pandemic. Well, so thank you very much for taking the time to uh, join us today to talk about a lot of things. I know you have a new book, and I'd like to talk to you about that as well. But I'd like to just start and ask you what seems like an obvious question to you, but perhaps not to many readers. And that is this study of animals and the idea that animals feel pain, have have some sort of culture, which I know is the topic of your new book, that they have behavior that changes based on what they've learned from other animals. I was fascinated to learn that that's really a relatively new area of study and concept. I think you mentioned that it dates back maybe, you know, just to Jane Goodall and the work that she's done. So could you just talk us through a little bit about what is the state of animal research and what led you into this field? Sure. Well, what led me into the field is that I've always, since I was a very small boy, I've just loved what animals do. I just love watching animals. I, I find them totally fascinating and very beautiful. I find them very instructive about what life is like on this planet, because it's not just human beings. There are all these other life forms, and they give us perspective on ourselves. It helps us understand ourselves better as well as we understand them better. And I uh, just wanted to try to do more and more of that and make it a profession, which I managed to do, oddly enough, and much to my own surprise. The study of animal behavior is really, I would say, really so new that most of the original practitioners of it are still working, like Jane Goodall, Ian Douglas Hamilton, who studied elephants, Cynthia Moss, who studies elephants. George Schaller, who studied gorillas and lions, and uh, and then a number of Asian wild sheep species, and this is, um, you know, it's kind of it's kind of amazing that 
just trying to understand the behavior of other living things on this only living planet is really so new and that many of these things remain confusing to many people like you know do animals feel pain do are animals aware of their lives and uh you know the the answers are yes of course they do but uh it's still oddly enough a matter of great confusion for a lot of people you know you were quoted as saying not assuming that other animals have thoughts and feelings was a good start for new science insisting that they did not was bad science where are we in terms of people's understanding it's both widely recognized and and widely i would say a source of confusion you know for instance we for a long time we tested cosmetics on animals like rabbits you know we put uh, eye cosmetics on rabbits eyes to see if they sting well you wouldn't do that if it didn't sting the rabbits right so operationally we've known for a long time that animals can feel pain we obviously uh can see with our dogs and our cats the only two animal species that many of us are familiar with that yes of course they 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 are aware they have pleasures they have fears they have pain they they have a sense of well-being all of these things and they ha- their nervous systems are almost identical to ours there's good reason to understand that many of their emotional responses like fear or pleasure are probably identical to ours an animal of some kind may run toward food and run away from danger that makes sense but people who are not familiar with animals or people who study them only in artificial laboratory setups or people who quite honestly have you know would have moral and ethical problems with the idea that the meat that they eat may have come from causing pain to an animal it it becomes difficult to understand that the answer to that question is yes it probably did cause pain to some animal you um bring this up in a, another another interview and which is basically something that has haunted me for the past week about self-aware fish and i wondered if you could explain why people were reluctant to publish a study um, originally that recognized that fish could identify them or recognize themselves in a mirror. Yes, yes. This is this is an interesting thing, and it shows you how science itself can be very resistant to new data because science is done by scientists who are human beings, and humans have human psychology, and that can be a problem for, you know, being open-minded sometimes. But basically there is a test called the mirror mark test and this test is supposed to test whether an animal understands that it is an individual and the way it works is you put a mark on an animal or on a child without them knowing that you've marked them you watch them eventually go to a mirror and and they look in the mirror they see the dot and they start touching the dot on their head they start rubbing it off so that shows you that they clearly understand that the image in the mirror represents them and this is considered to be proof of an understanding that they exist as individuals and that they understand that the image that they're seeing is a representation of them so humans can do this apes can do this so this has always been the province of 
very high-minded kinds of large-brained animals. And somebody did the test with some fish that are called bluehead wrasse, and the fish that were marked saw themselves in a mirror, and then they tried to scrape the part of their body that was marked on a rock. If a chimpanzee did that, you would just say, well, they know it was them. But because a fish did that, the editors of this scientific journal and the people who reviewed the paper, they said, we just don't believe a fish can do that. And that's, it's not scientific. You're not, you know, I mean, once you have the data, the data is supposed to be what you believe, and it's supposed to expand your understanding of the world. It's one of the hallmarks of science is it's supposed to be repeatable. If you can't repeat it, then maybe a mistake was made or a misinterpretation was made. But to say, we just don't believe that a fish is capable of understanding itself as an individual, that is not scientific, even though it was done by the editors of, and the reviewers in this science journal. But fish have been around for hundreds of millions of years. The idea that a fish that lives in a social group, as these wrasse do, uh, a stable social group usually, that, that they recognize themselves or can learn to recognize themselves, it's not a threatening idea to me, I guess is what I'm getting around to. You know, I just find that very, very, very interesting. It's surprising. I would like to see other people in other laboratories do the same test and see if they get the same result. But to reject it because it's a fish is not scientific. And it's disappointing that these, uh, you know, these journal people did that. Well, it's because it's threatening, right? We like to think that people eat fish and, oh, it's, it's a mindless creature that I use as my food supply. So I'm absolving myself of guilt in a way, by not recognizing that it has some sense of self, right? That's your point, yeah, but basically. That's, you know, that's just denial, right? I mean, obviously, right. some reality is uncomfortable. That's why the, the geometry of human progress is an expanding circle of compassion, as we understand that, you know, different kinds of people and different kinds of things are either, in you know, in the history, in, in human history, human social history, we've We've understood that actually, you know, all people deserve to be citizens with all the rights of citizenship for, uh, for th literally several thousand years. That wasn't the case uh, operatively today. It's not the case even in our own country, which is why we have the problems that we have. And uh, recognizing these things in other animals is also important if you want to understand who we are here with and how they experience the world and you and you want to be an ethical person and you don't want to cause unnecessary pain it, it these are things that i would think you would want to understand i i catch fish and i eat fish and i don't deny that they feel pain and panic when they're hooked and they're on my line and my response to that is that i try to catch them and kill them very quickly and minimize all of that but i don't deny it I read this on the internet, so of course I have to ask you if it's true, that you grew up in Brooklyn and had an experience and learned a lot from watching homing pigeons. Uh, I had a neighbor who 
lived next to me. I grew up in Brooklyn as well, who raised homing pigeons. So I'm very familiar with them. But tell, tell us about that. Well, first of all, is it true? And what did you learn from watching homing pigeons? It's true. I, um, I found out when I was very young that my father, you know, my father used to tell me stories about himself and his growing up and that he had a flock of pigeons. So of course, many, many kids want to be like their mom or their dad. And I wanted to be like my dad and I wanted to have homing pigeons. I wanted to have them like right now. And I was seven years old. Uh, thankfully, and, and fortunately for me, he agreed. So we fixed up an old shed that was in the backyard there. Many people had pigeons on the roof. We had the pigeons in a shed in our backyard. And when you raise pigeons, you put a stack of boxes inside the coop and you have a way of letting them out so that they can be out part of the time and then they come back. And the the boxes that we used were usually fruit crates, like wooden fruit crates. And you would put a bowl in there where they could build a nest. And then you would put a pile of nesting material in one corner of the coop. And the pigeons would decide who they were going to marry, who they would mate with. Sometimes they would squabble over which apartment they wanted, and there would be some competition for it. And they would then make their nest and lay their eggs and then care for their babies. And the parents would go and leave the coop for some period of time every day. I'm sure you saw them flying around the Brooklyn skyline. That's what they would do. Then they would be finished with doing that, that they had to do. They'd come back and they would eat their supper and they would take care of their babies, feed their babies, and then they would uh, go to bed, you know, go, go into their nesting cubbies and sleep for the night. And I, I, because I was a little kid and I loved those pigeons, I would spend a lot of time just watching them. I would often just be in the coop, just watching their behaviors, their mating, their courting, the squabbles, the feeding the young ones. And right across the yard, we lived in a in a tenement building, which was basically a stack of boxes where the humans in there had decided who they were going to marry and they made their own nests. And sometimes they competed for which apartment they would get. And the adults left for part of every day. And then they came back and had supper and fed their babies. And then they went to bed for the night. So the parallels in the the broad outlines of life for many different animals have always been something that I just naturally saw it was not an issue. It was not uh, a controversy. It was just a very natural, obvious thing to me that in broad strokes, life is very similar for many living things, especially the higher animals that we call vertebrates, like birds and mammals and, you know, fish and amphibians and reptiles. So, yeah. So just like you and like other people, they have a life that has its pattern to it, not so dissimilar to what you're seeing around you. Yes. And, and even though I, I then learned when I went to college that you're not supposed to attribute any human emotion or any human thought to other species, I, I could see and I continue to see. And when I talk to experts who study wild animals and have studied them for decades, they affirm the same thing, that obviously many of these animals do have very similar kinds of emotions. They're, they may not think of things in the way we think of things, but I think that there's a lot of overlap that we can see. For instance, we, 
we usually think that we think in words, but when you walk into your home or you or you get to your house and you pull into your driveway, you don't say, oh, this is my house. Oh, this is my spouse. Oh, this is the living room. This is the kitchen. You don't do any of that verbally. You just recognize everything that's familiar. And if a strange person is there, you recognize that instantly also, and you would become alarmed about that. That's how I think many other animals experience their life. And I, and I think we, we, can, we can easily see what that feels like because we experience a lot of our life in very similar ways. And that's really, uh, that's a good segue to your new book, Becoming Wild, in which you went out and observed, let's see if I have this right, sperm whales in the Caribbean, macaws mm -hmm. in the Amazon of Peru, and chimpanzees in Uganda to understand what culture means to them. That is exactly correct. Yes. So tell us, well, first of all, why did you want to do that? Why was this a necessary book? Because it, it seems to you could have done it with the pigeons, but I'm, I'm happy that you did it with these other animals. But why did you do it and what did you learn? Well, I, my previous book was called Beyond Words, and that is about what animals think and feel. And I wanted to go deeper into one aspect of the um, aware life or the, the cognitive life of animals, which is that many animals have culture and are, and are capable of having a cultural life. So I chose three of the most well-studied animals that I could, um, you know, reliably get good information on, on their culture. And then, of course, I, I, I brought in a lot of other animals, a lot of other examples of animals that have cultural existences. So first, culture is the behaviors and the habits and even the attractions that you learn socially and that are transmitted socially. They are things that don't come from pure instinct. They're things that you have to learn in your social group. Usually the first, the first individual you learn them from is usually your, your mother and then other elders in your social group. So for instance, a good example of that in humans is that humans have a biological capacity to learn a human kind of language. And we have an instinct for parts of speech like, you know, the grammar and the syntax that is involved in a language. But what language we learn is purely cultural. So if we're, if we're, grow, if we're raised growing up around people who speak French, we will learn to speak French, or we will learn English, Hungarian, Vietnamese, whatever it happens to be. The language itself is cultural. The ability to learn it is biological, it's genetic. The other thing culture does is it creates a sense of group identity because different groups do things a different way. So you understand what to expect if you're in your own cultural group. You won't get confused, you won't miss cues, you won't misunderstand things. You'll understand what you're supposed to do. This has the outcome of gathering individuals into a group, culture causes groups to form from individuals who identify with a cultural group. And humans have a lot of this, right? We have team insignias, we have national flags, we have different languages, we have religious symbols. You can recognize groups and group identity in these ways. The second thing culture then does after it causes individuals to 
aggregate into groups and have a group identity is it often makes groups mistrust other groups or avoid other groups or even be hostile to other groups. And this is the pitfall that humans continually fall into, I think, because in a sense, we have a lot of culture, we don't really understand how it's functioning. And we fall in, in our current world where many kinds of people are mixed together, which is not usually the case in nature. But in our current world, we have a great need to see through this and see past it and get along with each other. But I think because we don't quite understand it, we continue to fall into that pitfall. So differences, being afraid of differences. Yes. Essentially, it's, it's fearing those who behave differently. Yeah. What did you find? I mean, you looked at these three um, different animals. What was the most surprising revelation for you? I think the most surprising revelation is that, well, humans can tell, we have ways of telling if a total stranger is a member of our group or not. For instance, uh, you know, you see a flag or you see uh, somebody wearing the, the hat of your favorite team. You, you know whether they're in your, or, or a team that you're a rival of, you know whether they're in your group or not in your group, even if they're a total stranger. Most other animals that live in groups, the group size is limited by how many individuals they can remember because they need to know everybody. But the only animals that can recognize whether a total stranger is in their group is human beings and one of the animals in my book, sperm whales. Those are the only two animals known who can tell if a total stranger is a member of their group. And the way that sperm whales do it is they have these codes that are patterns of clicks. They, they emit clicking sounds and their codes announce who they are as an individual what family they belong to, and what clan their family is in. And if they hear that there's another family in the same clan, they'll go over and they will socialize. Often they will travel together. They may hunt together. But if it's individuals from a different clan, they will, they will avoid them. Knowing the secret code, basically. Knowing the secret code. Yes, exactly. I mean, it's fascinating, and there are many examples in your book. I encourage people to read Becoming Wilds because I was fascinated just uh, about how varied and how relatable culture is, uh, that you could see the parallels between people and non-humans. I'm curious, we, we have seen many examples of animals reclaiming space or going through towns because we're in this you know worldwide pandemic and people have abandoned spaces that they would normally occupy every single day, like cities, sheep roaming New Zealand, towns, et cetera. Or maybe it was Scotland that I'm thinking about, but. There's a few different places where things like that happen, including wild animals, yes. What, what do you think about that? I mean, we're. Unfortunately, we can't be in quarantine forever, and it has ramifications on all, all sorts of things. Everyone has been looking at pollution levels in India, and the water quality in Venice has returned. Um, but 
when you see what is happening with animals reclaiming spaces, it really shows you how much we threaten their existence or interfere with it in a way that perhaps we should give more thought to. But what is your what are your thoughts on that? Yeah. Well, first of all, I, I'm not happy that we have a pandemic. It's a horrible situation. And the fact that we have a horrible situation, a horrible situation whose effects fall unequally on different kinds of people who have different cultural differences is a terrible thing. I think that you know the pandemic highlights some of that about our own culture. But, but the pandemic also does have, at the same time, a few little instructive silver linings. The thing that you mentioned about the, you know, just the fact that humans are throttling back a lot uh, shows what happens with the rest of the world and therefore is an indication of the amount of pressure that we're always putting on the rest of the living world. These creatures starting to expand a little bit, the air cleaning up, those things are instructive. I, I didn't need, because I'm an ecologist, I didn't need the pandemic to show me how much pressure the rest of the living world and many other animals feel because I, I'm aware that we are in a mass extinction crisis. There are almost every other animal in the world is at the lowest population level they've been in in many thousands of years because, uh, well, because the human population in my lifetime alone has tripled and uh, the intensity of humanity continues to increase. So I think that you know the pandemic helped us do a little bit of it of an experiment. What what if you what if you bring that lever back? What do you see, and and what indication does that give you? Uh, and as you said, it it sh it does show you that there are many living animals that do things very differently because of the pressure that they feel from us and the 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 danger that they feel from us. And when we're not around, they're venturing out more. Is there something you'd like to see continue uh, after, I won't say this pandemic ends because the ramifications will continue on for decades, but uh, we're going to get back to some sort of new abnormal where people are out and about perhaps after a vaccine happens, but something that you would like, what, what is your call to other people to understand about animals and uh, behavioral change that you would like to see people really seriously consider and make? Well, quite a few people have said to me that the, the birds were very loud this spring. And uh, of course, they weren't louder than, than usual. They were just heard better than usual. And one of the reasons they were heard was there was a lot less noise. But the other was people were home more and people were paying more attention to the, their neighborhoods, their, their homes, their gardens, their families. I think Paying attention to beauty and paying attention to love are the two things we should be paying attention to, and we should be paying a lot more attention to those things. And on top of it, now we also have this, I guess you could call it a, a justice crisis. That's part of paying attention to love. Justice is an incredibly important thing, and we, I, we're being presented with opportunities to get some of these things in better shape than they've been for a long time. And I would hope that the momentum of that also carries far into the future.
the name of this podcast is I'm So Obsessed. And I have two questions off of that. Number one, how are you spending your pandemic? You said you have more time to work because you're not traveling. Introspective. I know you have some animals, uh, some pets of your own. I imagine you're spending time with them. But what are you doing to uh, occupy yourself during this stay-at-home period? Yes. Well, you know, as a person who's been writing mostly for about the last 25 years or so, I'm accustomed to being alone in a room as my workplace. So that was not much of a change. But I'm also accustomed to traveling a lot. And um, my book tour was canceled. Uh, A number of speaking appearances were canceled. Several trips where I was going to accompany groups to some remote places and be uh, part, partly their guide and partly their, uh, their speaker and interpreter of those places. Those were all canceled. There were, there were three big trips coming up. So I'm staying at home a lot more. And here's a really delightful, interesting thing that has happened. Two years ago, somebody found, we live, we live in suburbia on Long Island. And there is some wildlife around suburbia. And two years ago, somebody found a nestling screech owl that had fallen from her nest, was nearly dead of emaciation, was covered with fly eggs that would have hatched into maggots that would have killed her in a few hours. And a wildlife rehabilitator and I got her into shape and we hand raised her. Much to my great surprise, upon release, she decided to live in our backyard. And this late winter, just as the pandemic was starting to be reported, hadn't really hit, the lockdown had not hit, she acquired a mate. And now we had two owls in our backyard. And then I started watching them and taking a lot of notes. And I watched them go through a very interesting courtship where at first they were very tentative, a little hesitant about each other, a little little scared of contact. Then they were a lot more confident about each other. Then there was a lot of sex for a while. <laughs> then um, things got a little quiet, and I started to see them visit a nest box that I put up. She laid three eggs. They all hatched. They raised all the babies. All the babies have been out for about two and a half weeks now. I, I go every morning just before dawn. And every evening at dusk, I I go and I watch them and I follow them around and see what they're doing. It's been absolutely fantastic, um, really delightful, a really, really unique experience. I think I have enough really good material for a book uh, just out of observing these owls in my backyard. And none of that really could have happened. The the observation could not have happened if I was leaving as much as I, I was supposed to be away. So that's been not only a great compensation for staying home, but just a really delightful aspect of being home, just a, a real gift. Did you name the owl? Yes, her name is Alfie, and it's short for alfalfa because she's a little rascal. <laughs> That's great. That's great. Her mate's name is Plus One. <laughs> uh, we can't tell the we can't tell the fledgers apart. They they look very similar and they move around a lot. So uh, my wife came up with the idea that they just need a group name. So so the young ones as a group are named The Who. <laughs> Brilliant. Love it. That is so fabulous. All right. Very last question for you. Uh, other than your family of owls that owe their uh, very lovely existence to your being at home, what are you obsessed with? I, I am obsessed with the 
prospects for life on Earth to continue, there, there are just literally millions of other species, and we are, we are very hard on them. We're very harsh on them. They create beauty in the world. They bring beauty to the world. They have a right to exist. They are as much of this planet as are we. What's happening with them is of enormous concern to me. I'm doing what I can, and along with many, many colleagues in my profession, of being an ecologist and a conservationist, trying to maintain the, the, the living diversity of this planet and the beauty. And I think that a, a thing, an action is right when it adds compassion and beauty to the world. And it's wrong when it adds pain and ugliness. And it's a challenge to live accordingly and try to be the person that I'm, that I want to try to be. So that's what I'm obsessed with. It's a, it's a good obsession. It's keeping me busy. I'll tell you that. <laughs> well, I don't have owls here in Silicon Valley, but the morning doves have been nesting in our front porch overhang, or they did last year. We had three sets and a new pair just moved in the last week after scoping out the real estate, I have to say for a good week. Um, and so anyone who doesn't believe that birds are aware and understand and have a social structure or network, those morning doves have been in trees, checking out, making sure the cats can't get up there, that it's protected from the rain, and they've decided to move in. And so now we have a morning dove perched on her eggs over our doorframe again this year, which I love. That's wonderful. All right. Well, thank you so much for your time. I very much appreciate it. Good luck with the this book. Looking forward to your children's book about the owls. I'm sure a lot of kids. Thank you. Thank you you so much. And um, it's really been a pleasure to talk with you. Thanks again to Carl Safina for talking with me. And thank you for listening. We hope you'll take a moment to subscribe to I'm So Obsessed on your favorite podcast app. Until next time, be safe.